This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I am your host for News Talk Today this afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton. Welcome to the show and thanks for joining me. I'm going to kick the show off this afternoon and take your calls. 1-855-633-1010. Yesterday it was reported that U.S. Senator Ted Cruz's 14-year-old daughter had attempted suicide. Cruz, as you know, is an outspoken Republican senator from Texas who has a track record as a social conservative. What makes this story, uh, I think, so unacceptable and and tragic, although his daughter, thankfully, appears to be doing well, is that she came out earlier this year as bisexual. And what is happening on social media, on the comment section of newspapers as a result of this, is, in my view, absolutely appalling. But I want to take your thoughts on this. one 855 1010 Is it acceptable to take on a public figure, to take on a politician for his or her views, if in fact those views are related to something that happens in the family. one 1010 Let me read one of those tweets that caught my attention. A 14-year-old female child that lives in Texas came out last year as bisexual. Tonight, she attempted suicide. This is what the hateful laws against the LGBTQ plus do to children. This child is Ted Cruz's daughter. I think that's unacceptable. Send your prayers, your wishes, but leave politics out of family matters. 1-855-633-1010. You know, it is not nearly as extreme as this situation, not nearly as contentious, but I will say I have had my own experience with hateful commentary as it relates to a family member being ill and a family member being in politics. Some of you may know that my husband formerly was the leader of the Ontario PC Party here in Ontario. Our daughter, when she was three and a half, was gravely ill, and we spent a month at Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. It was just months before my husband's first election as leader, and so his schedule was extremely busy, and, and uh, certainly he was in the, the media and in the public domain on a daily basis. So we chose to put out a statement saying that she was ill and to ask for both privacy and prayers. Because we felt when uh, my husband's schedule needed to be scaled back that we owed uh, a public explanation for that. And we left it at that. And of course, we had wonderful comments, uh, wonderful thoughts along the way. But there were some comments that to this day bother me. And of course, it's always a bit passive aggressive, isn't it, in their commentary. So one person wrote in a, in a newspaper uh, comment section, you know, I wouldn't wish this on any parent or child. But maybe if his child dies, he will understand how important health care funding is. 1-855-633-1010. Let's go to your calls. Let's go to Jeff in Toronto. Jeff, your thoughts on this. You know, conservatives have to understand that this nonsense that they're getting along with, with the rhetoric against the LGBTQ community has consequences. And on, I think unless it happens to them, they will never understand. You know, on your station a few years ago, you used to have a host named Michael Corrin. He was a conservative as you can come. 
when he found out his daughter was bisexual or gay or whatever, he changed his position. Now he advocates for the LGBTQ community. Unless it happens to them, they don't seem to care. This is a dangerous situation these conservatives are leading their country towards. And unless, this is unfortunate that it happened to Ted Cruz, but unless these things happen to these people personally, they don't care. All right, Jeff, I'm going to let you go. Fully disagree with you, but thank you for your perspective. Let's go to Mayor, uh, Gary in Mississauga. Gary, what's your thought on this? Um, as far as the politicians go, unless the, fam- the politician's family is involved in the family business, uh, such as the, you know, the Trump scenario with his kids, uh, the politician's family, wife, children, uh, household should be off limits. That's not, the, that's not part of who a politician is. But is it, fair game, of, uh, is it fair game to make comments, just as our previous caller did, about the father's politics, given the circumstance no, of the daughter? Okay. No. All right. No. And I'll tell you the reason why is because that child is not in politics. If that child were in politics, fair game for the comments on them. But that is a family event that should be, be left to, to be discussed and to be managed with the family. I, I'm not a Ted Cruz family. I think he's a jackass. Uh, but I, I, I think in the same token, you leave his family out of it. All right, Gary, I'm, I'm more with you on that one. Thanks so much. We're talking about Ted Cruz's daughter uh, who committed, uh, who attempted suicide yesterday in their Texas home. Uh, there are several, I think, vile comments on social media that basically say, well, maybe he will change his position now that he sees the damage it will do. I say not fair game whatsoever, completely off limits. I'm going to go on to uh, Simon in Oshawa. Simon, what's your view on this? Uh, I don't think you can separate politics here. Like, God bless the, the, the daughter. Thank God she didn't kill herself um, successfully. Um, but how, what do you say to the parents? whose kids actually successfully killed themselves because of the hatred that, that this man has supported through legislation he's helped push, he's helped push through. You can't separate it. it. It's completely relevant. Okay. I appreciate your call, Simon. Again, I, I think you and I disagree on this, but I, that's why I wanted to take some calls. Um, the other person that um, spoke out about this is Megan McCain. You re- may recall her father, John, was a significant conservative politician, uh, certainly not a social conservative along the lines of Ted Cruz. But she basically spoke out and said, leave this kid alone. It is hard enough to be the child of a high-profile politician in their teens, uh, let alone having this and um, basically said offer, as I did earlier, prayers and hugs and concern, but leave politics out of it when a family faces a tragic event. Let's go to Ian in Oshawa. Ian, you with me on this or do you think that uh, all is fair game when you are so outspoken as a politician? All is not fair game, but uh, I'm not seeing the, uh, well, I've seen a couple of the tweets that uh, um uh, that you've, you've referred to, but I'm seeing an overwhelming amount of uh, support and caring uh, towards this uh, 14-year-old daughter uh, that people are very reluctant to even name. Uh, there's also um, a, a reluctance to compare the uh, Democrat support, left, left-wing support uh, in this case, to the right-wing reaction to Paul Pelosi's attack. 
uh, even that is off limits. I'm just seeing a whole bunch of love and support being directed towards this poor girl and towards Ted. Fantastic. And as I said, I, I there is no doubt in my situation as well, we received a lot of that. But there's a ton that are sort of what I would call passive aggressive, where they say, you know, I don't wish this and we wish them well. However, and, and yeah, that's, there's a, there's that's, some of that. that's my concern. Thanks for the call, Ian. Let's go to Paul in Toronto. Paul, what's your view on this? Hey, Deb, uh, people, uh, Ted Cruz uh, brings people's families into into it when he makes comments as well, right? Yep. Like, I'm not I'm not justifying what anybody is saying about his kid, but when he speaks out against homosexuality and, they, and the right make comments, they talk about my brother. They're talking about my cousin. They're talking about people's kids, and they cause pain with their words. And I hope that this is brings to him that you're talking about people's lives. And we need to be careful with our words. And it goes both ways. I, I don't agree with anyone saying anything about Ted, but he hurts people with his words all, all right. the time. Paul, thank you for that. It was obviously very personal and heartfelt. And, I, and I'll end on that note. It's, um, it's a tough one. Uh, you want people who are of good character and all of those things in public life. Uh, but it's hard because when you go into it, the rest of the family goes into public life along with you, whether they want to or not. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about uh, COP15 in Montreal. This is Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today. Toronto. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. The 15th UN Conference on Biodiversity is underway in Montreal this week. In fact, it is 196 countries over the course of 14 days. Their goal is to reach a global agreement to protect almost one-third of the world's land and oceans by 2030. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is calling for a global agreement to protect 30% of the world's lands and waters by that time. Uh, He says the future of our children is at stake. Until we agree that we should stop species from going extinct, until we agree that our water should be clean and our air should be clean, until we agree that it matters that forests, grasslands, jungles endure, we cannot guarantee a future for our kids. United Nations Secretary Antonio Guterres is calling for an end to what he calls an orgy of destruction aimed at the natural world. He says we are giving ourselves a death penalty. Pretty strong language. With our bottomless appetite for unchecked and unequal economic growth, humanity has become a weapon of mass extinction. We are treating nature like a toilet. And ultimately, we are committing suicide by proxy. Joining me this afternoon to talk about uh, the COP15 discussions in Montreal and, and is there herself is Mary McDonald, World Wildlife Fund, Canada's chief conservation officer. Mary, welcome to the program. Hi, Deb. Thanks for having me. So you are on site, so thank you for taking a bit of time to to talk with us this morning. Now, before the conference even began, I guess the convention even began, uh, it the, the secretary warned that things were already off course. What did she mean by that? Um, well, 
the UN Secretary General, um, I think, or the Secretary of, sorry, the, the Convention of on the Convention. Diversity. Yeah. yeah. I think what she meant was that, um, you know, we had targets for 2020 under this convention, you know, for protection and restoration and so on. And they weren't met for a variety of reasons, but also it all got delayed. So those targets that we started talking about updating, I think in about uh, 2018, ran out during COVID. So not only are we a bit behind in you know meeting the targets, but we had to put off the big discussion for almost two and a half years. So now those targets have essentially, um, they're done with, uh, they're expired, and we need to set new targets for 2030. The uh, quote that I, I just played from the United Nations Secretary himself was was pretty dire. Is yeah. your view that that is where we are? Um, I think, yeah, at WWF Canada, we do a lot of work. We do a Living Planet Report Canada. We see that the species numbers in the last 40 years have gone down. The population of species have gone down an average of almost 60%. A lot of ecosystems are you know, degraded from various types of activities, even just uh, a lot of people living in urban areas and things like that. But really what's making everything worse, of course, is climate change, the feedback loop with climate change, fires, droughts, floods, and so on. And that wrecks havoc uh, with uh, habitat uh, for wildlife and, and just generally for people as well. So I think it is it is getting worse, and it's getting worse faster than uh, people, uh, scientists generally anticipated. Um, yeah. So I, I guess as, as someone who pays attention but is not, you know, invested in this, to be frank and, and honest <laughs> about it, it does strike me that uh, having missed the 2020 targets for a variety of reasons, some of which you discussed, Mary, that it's in eight years seems almost impossible for there to be any sort of agreement out of this that would make uh, a third of, um, uh, of, of the world's lands and oceans protected in eight short years. Well, it's a good point, Deb. I mean, one of the things is we're not starting from zero. A lot of countries are somewhere between, you know, 17 to 25% protected. Um, and I think the main thing that everyone's hoping will come out of this discussion is that all the countries, all the signatories to the convention will agree publicly that there is a big problem and that we have to halt and reverse um, biodiversity loss. And where the 30% comes in, the 30% by 30, is really to give it some sort of quantitative half, to give it something that can be measured. Um, there's other targets out there, like 20% restoration. But I think people around the world are more comfortable and seem to understand this idea of protecting uh, lands and waters, uh, sort of area protections is maybe the most straightforward way to talk about um, halting and reversing biodiversity loss. But definitely people like us, like at WWF Canada, um, really want to see that global statement about that we are going to start going in the opposite direction. We're not going to go towards greater number of species extinctions. We're not going to go towards greater ecosystem destruction and disruption. We're going to turn, stop and start coming back from that. So is it more an aspirational goal, 30 by 30, than an actual I, target? 
Well, I hope it's not just an aspirational goal, but, you know, I've worked for a long time. I've been involved in the climate cops for a long time. And, I mean, people do need some sort of guidance, something to shoot for. Um, I hope it's not aspirational. I mean, Canada's starting some of the announcements coming out recently. We're starting to get uh, on on track for that kind of protection, for sure. Um, yeah, it's possible that not every country is going to um, meet it. I mean, people probably know that the U.S. isn't even a signatory to the Convention on Biological Diversity. So not every single country in the world participates anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, somewhat of an aspirational goal, but also not completely out of the realm of possibility. I'm speaking with Mary McDonald, who is the World Wildlife Fund of Canada's Chief Conservation Officer. She is at COP15, which is the convention taking place in Montreal with 196 countries over the course of 14 days, looking to come to some agreement around, uh, as you say, reversing at least the trend as it relates to our, our species and our lakes. Where are we in Canada in terms of getting to that 30 by 30? Um. You know, on it, it, they used to be separate goals. So it, there used to be one for, in 2020, there was a goal for land, then a separate goal for oceans. Um, we Canada pretty much made its target. We're at about uh, almost, I think, 17%. And that's in part because of some of the large protections in the Arctic. That's a lot of um, area. That when you start protecting things in the Arctic, your numbers go up very quickly. Canada has that the benefit of being able to do that. The land, we're, we're less. Um, we're closer to 10%, 12%. And the, the other perhaps challenge that Canada has is that, you know, the, the, we're, as we know, we're a country of territories and provinces, and we can't just, uh, the provinces have to kick in. Like right now, Ontario, for instance, is. 10.8% protected in lands, and they'd have to do their share to get us up to 30%. And the other uh, point that's really important is that in the past, sometimes I think these things have been imposed on Indigenous communities without consultation, without asking if these things are priority for them. And so we would only advocate for protections that had the full buy-in and full consent of the, uh, the rights holders. Um, among Indigenous nations as well. Mary, just 30, cents, uh, 30 seconds left <laughs> here. Um, do you see an actual agreement coming out of this that will have some heft? I think so. I mean, yes, I think there'll be momentum. I think we're hearing that a lot of people are really interested in a global statement to halt and reverse biodiversity loss. Also, very many countries are very interested in the 30 by 30 commitment. The the Tripping point might be that uh, in poor regions, in developing countries, they'll want to know if we sign on for that, what would be the resources to help us do it? Um, so I think that's the only thing that might we'll see, because as everyone probably knows, these kinds of agreements uh, are based on consensus. So one or two countries can throw the whole thing off. But that's, yeah, I think I think we have a good chance. All right. Mary <laughs> McDonald, World Wildlife Fund of Canada, Chief Conservation Officer. Thanks for taking some time out of COP15 to speak to News Talk today. Thank Coming up Dad. after the break, we are going to talk Trump and all things tax fraud. Keeping you informed daily. 
It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am your host this afternoon, Deb Hutton. Uh, Coming up after the break, we will have the next leader of Ontario's new Democratic Party, Merritt Stiles, joining us. So we look forward to that in about 10 or 15 minutes time. But right now we're going to turn south of the border. A Manhattan jury has found two Trump organization companies guilty on multiple charges of criminal tax fraud and of falsifying business records connected to a 15-year scheme to defraud tax authorities by failing to report and pay taxes on compensation for top executives. Joining us to talk about that and and, uh, some of the political repercussions, if there are any, of this particular set of charges is Jill Wine-Banks, who's an American lawyer who was one of the prosecutors during the Watergate scandal. Jill, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you so much, Deb. I'm glad to be here. So we obviously have a, a slightly different system up here. So why don't you walk us through what these charges are and what they actually mean? And I guess we should start with the fact that neither Trump nor his uh, family members were actually charged in this case. Right. This is a case that is brought against the corporations that he controls. There are references in the indictment to unindicted co-conspirator number one who is clearly the president. Um, At one point, it does refer to him as the president of the corporation, which is what the former president of the United States was at the time referred to. He was the president of Trump Organization. The other is their payroll subsidiary company that was uh, convicted. And what this means um, in simplest terms is that they are now guilty of a crime, um, 17 of them to be precise, which includes grand larceny, tax fraud, false document filings. Um, so there's a lot of different crimes. And the penalty, though, because it is a corporation, isn't that someone goes to jail because you can't jail a corporation, but it means a $1.6 million fine. And basically, given the... Um, income of the Trump organization, even though it is widely believed to be far less than uh, the former president has ever claimed, it's still not a lot of money. Um, It's a very small amount, so the consequences are something they can easily pay, but in our system, he will appeal it. Uh, And he's going to appeal on a very narrow legal ground that is this crime has to have been committed not just for the personal benefit of the employee who got the benefit, but has to have been done for the benefit of the corporation. And it's not questioned that the corporation benefited because it paid less taxes as a result of this scheme and conspiracy. But it's whether the person who orchestrated it intended it to benefit the corporation. So that's going to be the grounds for the appeal. And so is there any way to reach the, I'll call them officers, of those corporations, including the former president? There is. um, Now, one of the officers, the the chief financial officer, has already pleaded guilty to his own tax fraud uh, for not reporting the income he got. What, What happened here was instead of paying compensation that gets reported to the Internal Revenue Service, they started paying benefits like giving you an apartment 
uh, a very fancy apartment on the river in New York, or giving you a Mercedes-Benz, giving your wife a Mercedes-Benz, paying for the tuition of your grandchildren at a private school. And they didn't report that as taxable income. So the Internal Revenue Service, the U.S. government, and the New York State government, and the New York City government were all deprived of tax revenues as a result of this scheme. Uh, now, if he's pled guilty to this, and the question is how many others will be personally liable. Um, there is another several cases pending uh, indictment or some action. There is a civil case that the New York Attorney General has filed which could totally wipe out the Trump organization, uh, the corporation, uh, because of the charges being brought against them in this civil case, which are similar in the fact that they involve fraud, but are for misrepresenting the value of assets, upping them when it helps them, and then diminishing them when it comes time to pay taxes. Oh, it's not worth that much. I shouldn't pay a lot of real estate taxes on it because it's not worth as much as you think it is. But when you want to get a loan based on it, it's suddenly worth five times that amount. Um, so that was the kind of fraud that they're looking at in that case. And there's also a case going back to Stormy Daniels, a um, porn star who he had an affair with and who Michael Cohn, his lawyer, went to jail for paying off to keep her silent so she wouldn't tell the truth right before the his first his only election as president of the United States. And he was named again as co-conspirator number one in that case, but was never indicted. Now they're considering his being indicted now that he's not the president. I'm speaking with Jill Weinbanks, who's an American lawyer uh, and was one of the prosecutors during the Watergate scandal, talking about the fact that uh, a, a, a guilty verdict has been laid against two Trump organization companies for fraud and, and I believe 17 charges total. And, and you've just referenced, Jill, the, the civil suit that the New York attorney general has taken against Trump. The repercussions of that on a personal level, I believe, are much more uh, overarching in terms of his ability to function going forward. Is that accurate? They, they are. First of all, the potential uh, penalties are far greater. But also, he was trying to evade having to ever pay anything by transferring assets to a non-New York corporation that he named, very stupidly, Trump Organization 2. He wasn't even <laughs> clever enough to try to conceal what it was. And he was transferring assets from the Trump organization that could be found guilty by the attorney general's case. And therefore, there would be no assets to pay the damages and fines that would be levied against it. And he got caught with that and has been ordered to transfer no assets. And an overseer has been appointed to make sure that he does not do anything that continues the fraud that he is charged with. That one is significant enough that it could literally terminate the Trump organization as it currently exists, put it out of business completely. So that has some significant um, problems. I want to go back to something I didn't mention on the Trump org case with the 17 counts that was just convicted. Weisselberg was supposed to be the key witness. His testimony was very um, unclear. He weaseled a lot in what he said. 
And number one, he has a plea deal to get a better sentence for his cooperation. Frankly, my evaluation is he didn't really cooperate and he shouldn't get any value for his testimony. But secondly, it's clear that the jury didn't believe him because if they had, he basically said, oh, Trump didn't know, I never told him, and it's all me, 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 me. If they had believed him, they would have acquitted the Trump Corporation. So again, that leads to my conclusion, he should not get benefit for his testimony because it wasn't believable testimony. And just for our listeners here in Canada, uh, Weaselberg, of course, is the chief financial officer that you, yes. you referenced earlier who, who basically took a bit of a fall on this. Um, we just have a, a, about 45 seconds left. Jill, what is your take on how this is playing out in terms of the former president's potential aim to be the next president? I have to say I must be the worst person to ask because I have been sure a hundred times in the past that his career was over. When the statement of his, I just grab, um, I can't say this on American radio, I don't know if I could on Canadian, but um, I thought that would end his career. I thought the Stormy Daniels would end his career. I thought for sure his last statement that we should just terminate the Constitution would end his career. But Republicans in leadership roles have stood silent and his his most ardent fans don't care. They know he's a criminal. They know that he has no moral values, and they still support him. So whether it will have any consequences, I don't know. He once said he could kill someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose any votes, and he may be right. He could be in jail. He could get convicted on some of these cases, personally convicted, not just his corporation. Jill Weinbanks, I am going to have to I'm going to have to wrap you there. We've got a break coming up. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you joining News Talk today. Thank you. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thank you. I am so grateful uh, and excited to be the new leader of Ontario's official opposition, NDP. And the next few months, years, this is this is the critical time for us. This is where it all begins. Uh, this is where we get out across the province and we build our movement to hold this government to account for their terrible actions. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. That was the voice of the new Ontario Democratic leader, Merritt Stiles, and joining us this afternoon to tell us who she is and to talk about those next uh, critical few years is Merritt Stiles. Welcome to News Talk Today, Merritt. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So tell our listeners, we're actually a national show. Tell our listeners, Mm -hmm. who's Merritt Stiles? Well, you know, I was born and raised in Newfoundland and uh, came to Ontario about 30 years ago to go to school. And I'm stayed because of all the jobs and opportunities here. And uh, I've been uh, raising my two daughters uh, with my partner since then and uh, been doing lots of different things. But uh, I've been elected for the last uh, five years almost as the MPP for Davenport. And uh, just recently, as of yesterday, I'm... uh, I'm going, it looks like I'm going to be the next leader of Ontario's uh, official opposition NDP. 
So for those uh, of our listeners who don't know, Davenport is a, a mm. downtown Toronto riding here in the city. Um, and right. there was no leadership contest for Ontario's official opposition. So I don't, I, do, you, do you actually say you won when you have no contest or <laughs> well, you, know, <laughs> you inherited? Well, you know, I, I, I have been campaigning since uh, I officially entered the race back in September. And so we have had a leadership race underway. There have been a number of other MPPs that uh, explored it, that tested the waters and then decided not to or that they couldn't, you know, enter the race. And so uh, at this point, I, I became the only registered candidate. And, you know, I have to say, I, I'm excited about it. This is a, a unified party. I have the support of my caucus and, and, uh, and people are pretty excited, I think, about uh, the next few years. What is your view as to why this was not a contest? Is it simply people didn't feel they could catch up to you? Or uh, was was there another reason for what I would consider a lack of interest in leading the party? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that, no, lots of reasons, and I can't speak for my colleagues. Um, but I, I do think that we ran a strong campaign. We came out really strong in September, and I've been working really hard. I've been all over the province ever since then, uh, raising money, uh, talking to people, listening to people in communities uh, about what matters to them. And I think I have a very strong message as well about why uh, I see myself running. Um, I, see, I saw myself running and why I see myself as the best official opposition leader and, why, and the direction that I hope we take our province. So, uh, you know, I can't speak to why they didn't run, but I do think that um, I've had lots of support and I'm, I'm really excited about, uh, about what we're going to do over the next few months because to me, it's always been the beginning, not of a leadership campaign, but the beginning of the campaign to defeat the conservative government. So give us your pitch. We didn't hear it through a leadership. Give us your pitch now. Yeah. Well, you know what? Like I said, when I moved here 30 years ago, uh, Ontario was a place where you could imagine uh, raising a family, even buying a house on a working class salary. And you could rely on strong public education system for your kids and and knowing that there would be health care there for you. And and that's not where we're at today. No question, right? We've got a crisis in emergency rooms across this province where people are waiting 10 to 20 hours uh, to see uh, anybody in emergency rooms. We've got the Children's Hospital in Ottawa, for goodness sake, having to call in the Red Cross. This is this is shameful. It's uh, a terrible situation to be in. And classrooms packed with 40 kids and, you know, not getting enough support for kids, especially who are struggling. Uh, this, to me, is a crisis. And, and it's not normal. And that's what I've been telling people is, you know, we, we can expect better. We need to. And I think it's the reason why so many people didn't vote in the last election, which I found really concerning. I, I think uh, Ontario had, as you know, um, the lowest voter turnout in history uh, in June. And and I've been asking myself and asking others, why is that? And I think it's because for too long, uh, other parties have said, you know, this is as good as it gets. This is as good as you can expect. And I hope that we can put forward um, some solutions and show people that we can expect better of our government and that we can do more. And that if they elect an NDP government, we're going to do more for people. And I want to talk to you about some of those solutions, because, of course, your mm-hmm. your new job will be to be the opposition leader. And so all of the mm-hmm. things you just said are things we would expect an opposition leader uh, to say about a sitting government. And I appreciate mm-hmm. the election is not for almost four years. But mm-hmm. again, without the benefit of, of uh, a platform and a mandate through a leadership, I'm curious to hear 
your sense, Merit Styles, of the solutions that are needed mm-hmm. in the province on all those issues that you just articulated? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, we have to start investing, truly investing in public education and healthcare. And, you know, the crisis we're seeing in healthcare right now is a staffing crisis, right? It's a staffing crisis. People, nurses are leaving our healthcare system. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But a number one, re- the number one reason is disrespect and burnout. And this government imposed a bill, a wage freeze on healthcare workers. Uh, at a time when they were struggling the most to support us in the pandemic. And we've seen uh, droves of, of healthcare workers leave the system. And, you know, what we're seeing also happening is that private companies are stepping in to fill the gap and you know, nursing agencies, for example. Well, this is going to cost the system more in the long run. It's going to mean that funds are coming out of our pub, the, the, the money that should be going directly into public health care is going into, as I see it, profits for companies. And administration, um, that's not effective, that's not efficient. And and at the end of the day, I mean, the government should be acting urgently like this is the crisis that it is. Instead, what we see is just a bunch of little Band-Aids, you know, the occasional little tiny announcement. It's not amounting much. And we also know, based on the financial accountability officer's reports, that they're not spending the money that they say they are. Uh, so we've got a problem in healthcare. It's a similar issue in education, and we're starting to see the staffing crisis emerge there as well. Uh, you mentioned private delivery in, in healthcare. Is that something that you would uh, rule out? Absolutely, 100%. We in the NDP uh, will protect and invest in public education and public healthcare. And, you know, I, I have to say, you know, when crises like this emerge, this is exactly when a government like this says, okay, you know, the solution is privatization. And they're starting to move in that direction again. And, and we know that that's, that's not good for the people of this province. It's not going to pr- provide the kind of quality health care we need. And it's going to actually mean that the dollars that should be going directly into patient care get diverted elsewhere. So I feel very passionately about that. We're going to keep pushing back. And, you know, can I also say we, we are seeing this government since just June when they were reelected. A lot of issues emerging, things that they, they told us we didn't have to worry about, that now we have to worry about, like the selling off of the green belt. Uh, that's, that's for those listening. Uh, really important uh, wetlands and other ecologically important land, but also farmland. Farmland that we're going to need to feed Ontarians. And the government is passing some really egregious bills uh, and legislation to make changes in the laws to allow that to happen. And I got to tell you, I'm hearing across this province, people are really upset about that. And they're upset that the government lied to them that they wouldn't uh, that they wouldn't touch the green belt. Oh, Merit Stiles, I wish you and I had way more time to chat. So much for me to say (laughs) on what you just said. But thank you nonetheless for joining us. This is Ontario's new new Democratic Party leader, Merit Stiles. Coming up after the break, my favorite time of the week, it's the War Room. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. That is the signal that this is my favorite time of the week on News Talk Today. Of course, it is our time with three of our political pundits and experts joining us today. 
Zane Velji, a political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather. He was formerly uh, working with Calgary's Mayor Nahid Nenshi and Alberta's NDP leader Rachel Notley, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Welcome to News Talk today, this Wednesday, hey, gentlemen. Hey, Dad, what's going on? With you. So we are going to start with some provincial issues. I just, uh, in the last segment of the show, spoke with the newest uh, leader in Ontario. The NDP has a new leader. No convention, no contest, but nonetheless, at the helm is a woman named Merritt Stiles. She's a downtown Toronto MPP. She actually, Tim, hails from Newfoundland. She's incredibly personable, as everyone I know from that province is. And she appears to have support of caucus. But nobody wanted to run against her. And as much as I think she is a good choice for the NDP, I can't believe that she was so powerful and had it so wrapped up that everybody else was scared off. But, Tom, I'm going to start with you. What's your view of why we had no contest? I couldn't agree more with what you just said. Deb. I mean, she was a great choice. And I know her personally. I would have absolutely, if I was still in politics, would have said, let's go with with her but the problem of course for mara right now is she hasn't been challenged she gets no honeymoon period as she comes off a, a big slug fest of a campaign against a bunch of other candidates i think that in the one that i won to replace uh, our dear friend jack layton i think that at one point there were 11 or 12 of us at the beginning of that race and boy you know it was just a fireworks of ideas and you know it wasn't easy because there were stuff going back and forth but at the end of it Boy, we had been through an exercise and we had really put ourselves on the map. Now, she's going to give a really good accounting of herself with Doug Ford. What a contrast of styles. And yes, I, I really sincerely believe that she's got great stuff. She's got strong background on policy. She comes out of the union sector, ACTRA. She had worked there for a while. And yes, she is that personable, down-to-earth, good head-on-your-shoulders person from Newfoundland, Labrador. So I think a, a great win for the NDP, a great catch. Mm. But at the same time, I couldn't agree more with you that uh, the actual race would have helped in terms of people understanding who she is and getting a bit more of a feel for the party. Yeah, Zane yeah. Felshi, she... Um, you know, one of the things that leaderships do, and we all know that it's when parties are at their worst in terms of airing dirty laundry and those sorts of things. But what you do find out, and it doesn't matter whether you're liberal, NDP or conservative, is that all of us have different factions, different groups within the party. And you find out sort of where the balance among those sometimes competing interests lie. Where do you see Merritt taking the party? I mean, Tom will battle. be an ex... Well, Tom will be the expert on this, but I'll kind of give my my amateur analysis, which is for the longest time, the NDP has had a very long contested oscillating battle between do we lean into strict progressivism or do we go with working class labor? Uh, in the past, it's been environment versus labor, different things versus labor. But I think what this race allows her to do, maybe if we look at the other side of not having a contested race, is gives her a lot of latitude. She doesn't necessarily have to pigeonhole herself as being purely labor or purely on the progressive sort of quasi vote, uh, you know, woke side that Jagmeet Singh might represent on the federal uh, NDP. So it gives her latitude. But I will add to, to Tom's point, because I'm in agreement with both of you, that that this lack of stress test, not only does it not necessarily prepare her or give her a honeymoon. I mean, she didn't get a honeymoon at all. 11.59 p.m. last night, the PCs put out a press release saying, oh, no excitement over there at the NDP. So she's gotten no honeymoon. But the other big thing that we often forget is that these membership races 
uh, these leadership races spur out new members. They have people yeah. join yeah. the party. They have new yeah. energy joining the party. And that is as important in our Canadian system uh, for these political leadership races, as is the stress test and the quality and the um, mix and match of candidates and their core policies. So I think the big loss here is that they have an exciting candidate that I also agree on an output would be who would, would have been who I would have chosen, but they don't have the energy and the momentum of a membership drive behind it to kind of lift the day. And, and you really only get a few opportunities of doing that. And, and so I think that was the big loss here in, in my mind. Yeah, and money. I mean, let's not forget fundraising. Yes. Well, by extension of that money. Right, yeah. absolutely. People donate to candidates. A portion of that goes to the party. Now, some of that is hard costs that you just can't avoid to run debates and the actual actual night of the leadership. But you're right. It does raise money directly and certainly indirectly. And uh, by extension, has the media profile throughout the entire process. Whereas here, we were like, announcement, outcome. We got really nothing in between. Yeah, Tim Powers, exactly. uh, you know, one one of the other challenges here is that uh, she really doesn't have a mandate. And while you can look at it, as mm -hmm. I think Thomas just said, as a clean slate and ability to do anything, you, you don't have that sort of control of the party that you might have if you have had a well-fought leadership race. Yeah, let me get to that in a second. First of all, I'm a big Merritt fan, did a lot of TV with her. And of course, we have the, the blood the line links from Newfoundland Labrador, but I do have a phone <laughs> to pick with her. She's now exposed our Manchurian candidate plot that we have for the whole country, Deb, which is running every one of the freaking provinces. I mean, damn, Merritt, come on. Should have done better there. Uh, but I want to, I agree with everything my colleagues have said. Let me pick up on something Tom, I heard Tom say yesterday, I think he was talking to Patricia Bowles here in Ottawa, where Merritt has an opportunity, I think, despite all of the things we've identified as challenges to her right now, is she's a very different communicator than Andrea Horvath. Tom was talking to Patricia Ball about uh, meeting Tony Blair many years ago and advice Tony Blair had given to him or Tom had heard. Uh, uh, about reaching out to others outside the party and how that was very natural for Mr. Blair. I think Tom tried to do some of that, too. I think Merritt, I don't know if she will go that way, but she certainly has the communications posture and comfort, and from what I know, not necessarily beholden to any one set of stakeholders within the NDP to be at least given that initial opportunity. I don't know if that's even possible in the Ontario NDP, but I think part of her appeal is she has the personability uh, of, of that Doug Ford is, is, is often credited with and has policy chops as well. Yes, she missed the momentum of a leadership race. Yes, it would have been good for her to be tested in battle. Um, all of those things are true, but I don't underestimate her. I think anybody who starts their career, as Merritt did, um, not just with Actra, but also as a school board trustee, I mean, that's like the hand-to-hand -hand combat zone mm. of politics. <laughs> and she did very well in there. So call me an unabiased fan other than her revealing of our Manchurian candidate strategy. <laughs> Thomas, we'll can, go, I, can uh, I speak to that oh, go for, ahead, for a second yeah. very, very quickly? I think Tim makes such an excellent point. We often talk about communications and politics and, and why it's so important. But I'd say especially for a candidate who's on the progressive side of the spectrum, where the default for the NDP across the country has been, let's just add some water in our wine so we can appeal to the middle. To have someone who can tell a better story of the future world and of the policies that you want without diluting 
and trying to cater to the center in that particular way with with the dilution versus telling a better story. This is where that comes in handy, where someone who can tell a better story of the future, especially with policies that are big and ambitious that the NDP have historically wanted to do. This is where a solid communicator comes in to actually sell what you want rather than leaving everyone, your base and the middle dissatisfied because you had to dilute because you couldn't have the communication or marketing chops to, to necessarily bridge that gap. Thomas, let's see if we can do this in 30 seconds. I called them uh, factions. Uh, Tim referred to them as stakeholders. How do you see her bringing everything from traditional NDP base, the blue collar, uh, you know, steel workers, those sorts of folks with the downtown work woke environmentalists? Nothing succeeds like success if she is successful in taking on Doug Ford, in defining him and his policies. All of the people that you've just named will be on side with her no matter what. She is a very engaging person and she does have that experience. And I can tell you right now, I've seen her think on her feet in very difficult, complex situations where she had to come up with something very fast and she's solid as the rock of Gibraltar. So I think that the NDP have come out winners, but I do still believe that a little bit of testing of those ideas would have helped her in the long run. All right, you managed to do it. Zane Velshi, Tom O'Care and Tim Powers, our war room on this Wednesday afternoon. You're listening to News Talk today. After the break, we're going to go to Montreal and Alberta and talk politics there. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. Am I there, Tony? It is Wednesday afternoon, which means we are talking about the all things Canadian politics. Sorry, I had a problem with my mic, folks. It's The War Room. Joining us this afternoon in The War Room, Zane Velji, a political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather. He formerly worked with Calgary's Mayor Nahid Nenshi and Alberta's NDP leader, Rachel Notley. Thomas Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. We're going to go to Alberta now. I know the, the four of us chatted last Wednesday about Danielle Smith and her new sovereignty legislation, but uh, there's been a lot of reactions since we last chatted. So, Zane, I'm going to start with you. How is it all playing out in Alberta, and what do you see happening going forward? Well, it hasn't gone well. <laughs> Let's put it there. It has not gone well for Danielle Smith. She puts out the legislation. Business groups, uh, energy industry folks are saying it's a bit of an overreach. This will, this will be not good for, for business. The, the, the UCP and Danielle Smith's government has said, OK, we'll go back to the table. We'll take these overreaching powers, by the way, that we added. Maybe we didn't actually fully appreciate how unconstitutional those might be. We might remove those. Uh, it has been a week of, of drama. It's been a week of chaos. And and for many, uh, it still has the undertone conversation of saying, OK, even despite Daniel Smith going back to the drawing board on the Sovereignty Act, why are we spending so much time on the Sovereignty Act? No one has indicated that this is a priority. No one has indicated that this is how we get a solution to affordability or the crumbling sort of healthcare situation. Uh, it has not gone well. And you now are starting to see conservatives, uh, bona fide conservatives speak out and say this. This is not conservative. This Sovereignty Act is not what we do, whether it is a new iteration or the previous iteration. 
Um, so it has not gone well. And, and there's a, a, an element of instability here in Alberta. And I think that instability and unpredictability might be the overarching tone going forward, at least till the end of the year here, until Danielle Smith kind of gets her feet wet, figures out what she's doing with the Sovereignty Act, and then hopefully for the people of, of my province, figures out how to solve the bigger issues that actually ail us. So it has not gone well here. And, and, and you're seeing that across the board resonating with stories every single day about the tweaks and the next sort of mini chapters of, of this saga. And it's not fully written yet either. And I was going to ask you if you were surprised by uh, the party's reaction, but I mean, she really hasn't said this is the wrong thing to do. She's doubling down. She's she's taken out ads. She's taken out digital ads. She's actually trying to go up against some of the business groups, against the opposition parties, saying they're the ones that are wrong about this. It's a bet that she's taken. I don't think it's a bet she's going to win, but she's absolutely not retreating. And we've seen political figures, uh, both in this country yeah. and elsewhere, find success by doubling down, just wear out the population. Fatigue eventually will set in. And so both opposing parties and the media know that, and, and she does as well. So she has not retreated. In fact, she's going in the, in the opposite direction of saying this is absolutely the right thing to do. Thomas Mulcair, so, Tim, can I pick up? Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to, sorry. Go, no, Tim. On the front go, go, go. No, I, I would just say that the converse also has happened, though, too, in terms of, of not retreating. Look at what Doug Ford did with the notwithstanding clause usage and the QP strike. He retreated faster than Hussein Great example. on 100 meters. Great uh, example. So yeah. sometimes when you know you made a mistake, you do it. What's fascinating for me, adding on to what Dana said, how alone she is out there. Um, she, you know, normally when a premier takes a position uh, about their right to have rights, and this is an extreme position in that regard, I don't support it. I'm fully there with that. You know all of that. You would get maybe some other premiers who'd offered some allied support because they see a benefit in it. Mr. Legault had said one or two things. Mr. Moe has said one or two things, but they have been brutally quiet. Um, mm -hmm. Even those who oppose her have been smartly quiet because they yep. don't need, you know, never interrupt an enemy when she or he is in the exactly. process of making a mistake themselves. It's, it, it is astounding to me how newsworthy this is and how alone she is and how she's decided to stay the course on all of it. It's, it's fascinating. And Thomas Mulcair, and how close to an election she is. Well, that's it. I mean, this is all about three-point jump shots at the buzzer for her right now. She figured that this would be nothing but net, but it's been nothing but trouble. And in the meantime, building on Tim's point, I've also noticed that Rachel Notley, very stateswoman-like, going at this, of course, doing her job, but not setting her own hair on fire. And the average Albertan who elected her a couple of elections ago to be their premier, sort of remembering fondly somebody who was a, a true Albertan, who understood their values, came at problems from a slightly different angle, but that everybody respects. And I think that Notley is building very quietly towards that election. Trudeau, Dominic LeBlanc questioned last weekend, so what are you going to do about this? This is not a fight we want to have. Of course, it's something that the Privy Council office and everybody in the Justice Department is paying attention to, but that was a perfect political answer. It's just like, Ah, you know, we're not going to give her the satisfaction of reacting too strongly because this thing is a non-starter. Zane, just you know, one last word on yeah. this. Yeah, go ahead. I'd say uh, let's talk about silence. Pierre Polyev, 
This should mm-hmm. be the natural ally. Anything yep. that goes after Justin Trudeau, he should jump on. He should elongate. He should add his social media influence and credibility. He should extend the news cycle on, but he is not. And I think that is super telling. Yes, there's the old PC brand that might not be aligned with her, but Pierre Polyev is an ideological cousin, maybe brother yep. to Danielle Smith in many ways, even on, on tactic and tone. And you do not see him supporting this, pushing this, pumping it up. Tim is absolutely right. She's all alone. She's trying to figure out where she double down, or doubles down or retreats. I don't see any any retreat from her or any indication of it other than the revamp of the potentially unconstitutional executive powers on it. But man, oh, man, um, this has not landed like she thought it would. And she had every opportunity last week to put it behind her, and she's chosen not to. So part of me thinks this was partial political mistake and misread, but also partially conviction and who she is, because uh, there there is an element to, to, to who Danielle Smith is at, at a core here that's presented within this legislation. Thomas Mulcair, you uh, just wrote uh, an editorial piece in the Montreal Gazette saying that right. your premier there is focusing on the wrong language stats. Tell us what you mean. Legault has been going after the fact that Montreal, which is a very cosmopolitan city, has about half the population speaking a language other than French at home. Could be English, but more likely it would be something like Spanish or Creole or Arabic. So Legault is pointing to that as an existential threat to French in Quebec. Now, anybody who went through this going back to the 1970s when the law was brought in that said all new arrivals have to send their kids to French school. Those kids all speak fluent French today. The parents have picked up French and everything's changed. But now they're trying to tell people what language they're allowed to speak at home. Beyond that, a lot of the commentary are saying, yeah, you know, I've also noticed that some of my neighbors are listening to TV channels in their own language instead of French. So I just hit a big red button on my dashboard. And I said, hold on, this cannot be the discussion we're having in Canada in 2022. You're not going to start telling people what language they can speak in their own home or what language they, in, in which language they can consume uh, th- their cultural products. And that's exactly where Legault is. So I like pointing out a different fact, which is that in the greater Montreal census area, which is about 4 million people, 90, 90% of the population can hold a conversation in French. Legault never talks about that because it undercuts his basic thesis that he's made up that French is in dire straits right now in Quebec. Anybody who's lived through these past decades knows that Quebec is a much different place, that the lingua franca is now French, and it's really changed for the better for people who were worried about it, and he's making a lot of this stuff up. It's pure divisive politics at its worst. But Tim Powers, is it working? Well, he keeps winning, uh, and uh, he clearly has, as Tom and others have articulated before, a strategy to get separatism uh, or autonomy, national autonomy, through other means. And this is another way of doing it. He chips away at it piece by piece. And whether he succeeds, only time will tell. All right, gentlemen, it always goes way too quickly for me. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Deb. Tom Mulcair and Tim Powers. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk about the most recent Bank of Canada interest hike and what it means to you, your family, and your business. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeart Talk Radio Network.
News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am your host, Deb Hutton. And as expected, the Bank of Canada raised its interest rate again today, half a percentage point, bringing us to 4.25%. Joining me to talk about what that means in tangible terms for you and for me, your business, if you happen to run one, is Amanda Lang, BNN Bloomberg anchor of Taking Stock, a podcast and weekly business program on Bell Media Networks. Amanda, thanks for joining News Talk today. Great to be with you. So 0.5%, surprise, not surprised? What was your reaction? Not a surprise that they moved. And really the um, the analysis was split down the middle on whether it was going to be a quarter point or a half point. A half point does, if if there's a silver lining here, and for everybody uh, whose debt just got more expensive, they're going to be looking for one or needing one, it's that it puts them closer to being finished. Uh, So the signal we did get from the central bank today was, yes, we went up a half a percentage point. You were now four and a quarter. Uh, this is a lot, but they are now signaling that they may pause. We won't know till January. They may go again in January. They've made that clear based on the data they see. But I'm seeing a lot of economists calling it their, their pivot moment. So this could be the end. So, uh, you know, this could be the, the pain we have to endure. And it might be something that we can kind of figure out how we cope with it at this level instead of always worrying that it's going to get worse. So a bit higher than some were predicting, but maybe mm-hmm. the end in sight. Certainly their language changed a little bit when they announced it. Definitely a clear signal that uh, they, they're not saying we definitely need more hikes ahead, which has been the tone we've had for the last seven meetings. They're now saying we're going to watch and see. And that's been the real plea from a lot of people is let the hikes you've done take effect because we know that they're starting to or they seem to be starting to. And we know they take about 18 months. So uh, coming into the spring, we'll start to begin to see the real effects. Uh, the, the real question will be, can people hold on? We know the job market is still strong. Uh, the economy is still doing very well. We've got surprisingly strong growth ending in September. But for people with variable mortgages, we are looking at pain here. And we've heard some from some of them. You've heard from some of them. Uh, it's, it's real pain already. So another half percentage point is nothing to sneeze at. That is going to cause some additional pain for folks. Yeah, I mean, we did we did have folks in the last round. I think you and I chatted in a similar mm-hmm. vein, uh, saying this this they just couldn't take any more. And this is, as you said, on the higher of the of the discussion around where we might be. So just tell our listeners, Amanda, because you're you're so versed in these things. What is it that the bank will be looking for come January? Unfortunately, Deb, they're looking for suffering. They're looking for a slowdown in business, slowdown in spending, uh, layoffs higher unemployment, Uh, they're basically the Grinch at this moment because what they need to see in order to see evidence that we will all stop spending is a real reason for us to. So they try to lay it on by making everything a little bit more expensive. Uh, What they don't want is a a deep recession as a result of what they're doing, but they definitely need to see a slowdown in the activity. Um, It's, you know, economists will talk about kind of slack in the economy, excess supply or, or, you know, too much demand. What they want to do is go back to a situation where there's more supply than there is demand. There's more stuff in the stores than us wanting them, which is a flip from where we've been for the last few years, of course. Pandemic really turned that on its head. They're looking for us to be in a little bit of pain. So, again, the most vulnerable here are the ones to watch. They're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of this, unfortunately. Those in the middle who can figure out a way to muddle through, this could be short-lived. This could be a few months, and then we come out the other side. The bank seems very confident it will get inflation under control, and that rates will start to get back to normal within a year or two. 
So certainly uh, housing uh, is an Mm -hmm. issue, particularly if you're someone with a variable rate. Uh, This is a a tremendous hike, presumably on the base that you that most people have these days, which is relatively low. Yeah. Um, Food inflation has been a big topic this week. Obviously, that is uh, not necessarily harmed by this, but certainly not helped by this whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the makings of food inflation are really international in scope. And so this doesn't actually help it. It's not going to solve the food inflation problem. It's just an additional burden on everybody. So the food inflation piece of this is a reason, I think, for the bank to be extra cautious, not to go too hard and too far. Um, that would argue much more in favor of them not moving in, in January again, uh, because really the food inflation is doing its job for us. It's raising prices uh, for, you know, for the bank and keeping us from from buying as much as we might. Um, it's just a really, pain, again, most painful for the people who can least afford that pain. Uh, so our vo- most vulnerable right now are the ones who are suffering. Um, and food inflation is not going to go away until some of those global issues have resolved. And when we think about in our own homes, you know, what, what an interest rate hike means, obviously, we talked housing. Um, but for those who have uh, the foresight and and the luck to have some investments what are the markets likely to do here well if we hit when when i should say we hit this pivot moment uh stocks will do well and we've already seen a little hint of that Uh, we've seen stocks rallying off bottoms because when we start to feel like in the central bank in the u.s and our central bank are finished and they're going to go back to a slightly more relaxed monetary stance then markets really will do well uh, if that matters to you, and again, for most people, that should be white noise unless you're close to retirement. Uh, you know, you need to set it and forget it and let it be something that will grow over time. The ups and downs of months or even years um, hopefully aren't bothering people too much, and you shouldn't let it if you're not going to be retiring anytime soon. But for people who do have investments that they need performance from, you should be able to see some better performance once the banks stop raising rates. That's kind of a classic pivot moment for the markets as well. I'm speaking with Amanda Lang, who is BNN Bloomberg's anchor of Taking Stock, about the Bank of Canada's increase in the bank rate today, the interest rate of uh, half a percentage point, bringing us to 4.25%. We chatted briefly about what the bank will be looking for in their wait-and-see approach come January. Do you still think that we are likely to have a, quote, technical recession here in Canada? I think it's likely uh, in the sense that it's what the bank is working so hard for. Having said that, I got a lot more optimistic that we might skirt a recession or certainly of any kind of magnitude when we saw the, the end of September growth numbers, uh, very strong 2.9% for the three months ending in September. Now, we have maybe all changed our behavior a lot, and you do hear anecdotally that, uh, that our spending changed a lot in October, November. But it gave me some comfort that that was better than expected. The economy's holding up. The thing that is most important when you think about people's well-being, Deb, is do you have a job? And is your job safe? So we've definitely seen pockets where that is um, scary and unsafe, and that's especially true in the tech world. So this is where your own situation becomes the thing you need to analyze. Is your job safe? Is your company likely to be safe, even in a slowdown? And if it is, then don't let all of this give you too much anxiety because your job is the most important thing when it comes to servicing your debt and managing your own life. Amanda, I'm going to take advantage of having you on News Talk today, this afternoon, to talk about results of a a survey that are out today. It's a Mm -hmm. regular survey by the American Chamber of Commerce in Canada. Uh, It it sounds like Canadian, uh, American executives who function here in Canada are very concerned 
about our economy and where we are going both with monetary policy and with inflation. Just your thoughts generally on that, because that sounds pretty dire. Yeah, I was interested in this one. This is this, um, as you say, it's a recurring survey, so we get to see it tracking over time. And actually, over time, it's it's getting better. They're they're not as pessimistic as they were um, a few months back. The single biggest reason for their pessimism about the economy here is uh, regulatory issues or red tape. Uh, that gives me some comfort because that seems to me like things that businesses always have to deal with. And that's just kind of the way, you know, maybe they wish it was better, but that's the way it is. They are worried about our central bank raising rates and they are worried about the, the path of our economy. But those are second and third. Uh, so overall, I would say, you know, yes, there's some pessimism, but nothing here that makes me overly nervous. And definitely it's tracking better. It's better than it was. So I'm going to take that as a, as a win. I'm going at the glass half full on this one. That's amazing. Okay. I, I like to hear that. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, this obviously, they were in the field prior to today's rate hike, which, as yep. we've just discussed, was on the high end of what was maybe expected. So I, I actually thought you might have a more negative uh, reaction to this. Well, and the thing to keep in mind is that whether it's our central bank or our economy, we live in a world that's graded on a curve. So it's all relative. Our bank isn't doing anything out of line with what the U.S. central bank is doing. And our economy, if anything, is stronger than other economies, including that one. So on a relative basis, Canada's looking pretty good these days. So from that point of view, I would say businesses are always concerned. The fact that they put red tape and regulatory concerns at the top gave me some comfort because that's the kind of, that's the the stuff you worry about when things are pretty good, if I can say that, Uh, you know, because that's sort of secondary to everything else. All right, Amanda Lang, we are going to leave it on a positive Mm -hmm. note. Thanks so much for joining me uh, on News Talk today. Always a pleasure. Coming up after the break, Women's soccer on the rise here in Canada. I got two girls, so I can't wait to chat about this after the break. You're listening to Deb Hutton. It's News Talk Today. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. A decade ago, Canadian soccer player Diana Matheson scored one of the biggest goals in Canadian history. She scored the goal in the 92-minute mark that won Canada the bronze medal at London in 2012. Joining me this afternoon to talk about an exciting new project she has launched is Diana Matheson, retired Canadian professional soccer player who played for our national team from 2003 to 2020. She is a two-time Olympic bronze medalist, and we are so pleased to have her with us this afternoon. Diana, welcome to News Talk today. We got her, Tony? We had Diana, so hopefully she can join us uh, momentarily. She's now the co-founder of a project called Project 8, which is a company that has just announced plans for a women's pro league to launch in 2025 with eight teams across the country. This is something that I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, Both of my girls have played soccer, certainly at the amateur level only. Uh, One of them, I just had a conversation yesterday with another uh, parent, uh, one of them looking to perhaps become a little more competitive in her soccer play. It's a sport that I believe is something that uh, really encourages girls to be part of a team, to play hard uh, as as a member of that team. Diana, you're with us now. Hello. Hi. So joining us to talk about Project 8, tell us all about it. 
Yeah, Project 8 is the name of the company founded by myself and my business partner, Thomas Gilbert. We met through our executive MBA program. Eight, uh, because the league we're building, which kicks off in 2025, will have eight teams across Canada. I did also wear the number eight for a couple decades for club and country, so I have some, uh, some affinity to the number there. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit about what the league will look like. This is obviously breaking ground in many ways um, for women's soccer. Yeah, absolutely. So kickoff in 2025, uh, eight teams, as I said, four in the east, four in the west. The season for us, I mean, we live in Canada and we have winter, so kickoff in April, play through October and November. Uh, And the league we're building, which will be branded and named next year, will be an independent organization, so not directly affiliated with our men's leagues, uh, but uh, our clubs uh, may have partners with MLS clubs, obviously, Vancouver Whitecaps FC is our first team in the door, as is Calgary Foothills. Uh, And for the next six months, we'll be seeking out the right owners and ownership groups across the country to fill out our other six markets. And so that is is how the project is funded. It will actually function with the traditional uh, system that we see in men's soccer. Yeah, we've, we've built this uh, a bit differently. So Project 8 is building the league. When we incorporate the league next year, uh, Project 8 will keep equity in the league to continue to steer the strategic director uh, direction. Excuse me, And each t- team coming in will own equity in the league. So that's slightly different than kind of how MLS or NWSL was started. We're funding this through our corporate sponsors and team owners that are coming in the door. Uh, franchise fees for our teams are a million dollars and sponsorship is a huge part of this. Uh, It's a huge lever we can pull for revenue in the Canadian market and women's sports. Canadian companies have been really leading the way and pushing positive change in sport and we're very lucky to have CIBC and Air Canada as two of our founding sponsors coming in ground floor and excited to build this with us. Um, So those are the two sources of income that are funding the building of the league. And, and what about uh, media opportunities? Yep, absolutely. It's broadcast. Uh, our distribution deal is going to be a really important part of this. We know in women's sport, traditionally, um, we've struggled with this. We haven't done a great job in making our product visible. So we know with this league, we have to get that right. And we see in markets around the world, uh, the U.S. League, the English League, uh, women's pro leagues around the world, anywhere you've seen a move, to mainstream broadcast, you see a huge jump in viewership and engagement. Uh, And we expect to see that in the Canadian market too, so it's a priority for us. That's a conversation we'll be entering uh, in the second half of next year. Uh, And the two things we'll be optimizing are quality of the product, our broadcast has to look great, and we have to make it visible to Canadians. So we're not actually projecting a ton of revenue from broadcast in early years because we're just going to maximize visibility to make sure Canadians can see this. You mentioned four teams in the East and four in the West. Do you already have locations or will that be dependent on who purchases a franchise? Yep, it'll be dependent on team owners and also the existence of uh, facilities and stadiums, which can be a challenge in the Canadian market. Uh, There's about 13 markets we're looking at across Canada, and that's based on population size and, again, stadiums. And we want teams from coast to coast, anywhere from Vancouver Island to the Maritimes. We want a team in central Canada. Uh, We'll have at least one club in Ontario. We want at least one team in Quebec. And we want a team in uh, the Maritimes. So 
those we know the markets we're we're looking at. So for those 13 potential markets, of which there will be eight, presumably, um, there are existing facilities there that could be used for women's soccer? Yeah, we have, uh, in the short term, uh, there'll be options in in the cities we choose in in which to play. Stadiums are an important piece, and we will look to invest in infrastructure and build in the medium to long term. That's a a really big piece in professional sport, obviously. Uh, And women's sport is starting to grow into that space. And the more we can play downtown in great stadiums of the right size, the more professional sport thrives. So that's important for us. So ideal size for us is six to 8,000 seat stadium. uh, And we have options across the country uh, to play in to begin with. And then we can look to build in the medium to long term. I'm speaking with Diana Matheson, who is a retired Canadian professional soccer player, well known to to anyone who follows women's soccer in this country, about her exciting new project as co-founder of something called Project 8. that will be launching at the uh, spring, I guess you said, April of 2025 with eight women's teams across the country, our first women's pro league to launch. Diane, I just want to talk to you a little bit about why now in terms of, uh, is it just that that opportunity in your life at this moment? Or do you think there's actually a, a pivotal moment in women's sports and in soccer and, and the following that it has generated over the last number of years in Canada? <laughs> I would like to answer uh, C, all of the above. <laughs> um, timing, I mean, any business opportunity, right? You need, you need an opportunity, you need revenue, you need the team, and you need timing. And the timing on this project could not be better. Uh, it's never been better, and it's not going to get better. We're obviously coming off a gold medal from our women in Tokyo. Uh, the men have now burst into the, you know, the world stage and have, brought excitement around soccer to a new level in Canada. Uh, The women's game itself, the women's professional game, is really exploding around the world. Women's sport is the fastest-growing area of sport. So it's time for us to enter the market. Because if we don't enter the market now, we're going to be left behind by our peers, and we're not going to be able to afford it now. And the timing right now to enter is perfect. Uh, We kick off, uh, you know, we have a, a Women's World Cup next summer, then an Olympic Games in 2024, so eyes will be on women's soccer. Kickoff in 2025. Men's World Cup in North America, 10 games in Canada in 2026, which is going to take soccer to a new level in Canada. Then another Women's World Cup in 2027, and we know those events are associated with higher viewership and interest for women's professional leagues. And then 2028 is the Olympic Games in North America, so that's going to be fantastic. And then, you know, we'll be looking to build stadiums after that so it's a really good timeline for us to be launching this week diana matheson we thank you so much for joining us we hear the enthusiasm in your voice and as a mama two girls i can't wait love it thanks so much for having me you've been listening to news talk today i'm deb hutton mark tui will be here tomorrow have a great afternoon